As someone who grew up on the Thames estuary, my abiding memory of primary school is being repeatedly warned to stay away from the mudflats. The vast expanses of soft, wet mud just over the harbour walls might look like a great place to go and play, but every year they'd have a firefighter or a cop or an air ambulance worker come in to talk to us about how you absolutely mustn't go exploring out towards the river. The reasons they gave were always the same. If you've ever gotten stuck in a muddy puddle, you know that trying to pull yourself back out is much, much harder than getting in. It sucks at your foot, demanding you give up your boot and maybe your sock as well just to get free. Imagine that, but your leg sinks three feet deep before you've realised what's happening, and before long it will take a winch strapped to the back of a truck just to get you out. If that's not bad enough, the mudflats of the Thames estuary are, as the name might suggest, flat. That means that when the tide changes direction, water rolls up them faster than a normal beach. You can go from completely exposed to five feet underwater in less than 30 minutes. It all made a lot of sense to me as a child. I couldn't tell why they needed to keep drilling it into us. Drowning in the mudflats seemed like the worst fate imaginable. Feeling the freezing water rise above your waist and then your shoulders as you strain fruitlessly against the cold grey muck. Surely people would do anything to avoid that. And yet, every year, dozens of people would be taken by the mudflats. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. so often when I was a child, my mum had to take us to go and look at the sea. It's interesting that, as I've grown, I've learned that my family wasn't unique in this regard. I have several friends now who do the same thing. They yearn to be close to the ocean, to gaze out over the rolling waves and access that sense of peace and serenity which comes from recognising yourself as part of something larger. It's humbling to look out at the sea, but it's also reassuring something constantly changing that will outlast you nonetheless. I get it, although I don't have quite the same compulsion, not about the ocean anyway. For me, I've always found a sense of hypnosis in rivers. All the cities I love the most are built around major rivers and waterways, and gazing out into the muddy brown water of the Thames on an overcast day makes me feel connected to the broader world. I think about how the Thames fed London, how the city was so comprehensively boat-centric during Britain's colonial period that you could famously make it from one bank to the other without using a bridge, by simply hopping from boat to boat where they were anchored across the entire breadth of the river. Nowadays, the river is much more ornamental, at least in the city. Boats still to and fro regularly, but it's more passenger ferries and pleasure cruises than heavy cargo. There are whole neighbourhoods named after docks which now barely exist, except as redeveloped luxury flats with good access to Canary Wharf. All the heavy freight has been kicked downriver to major terminals close to the estuary. For all my mixed feelings about the city, I still like to go down to a little spot between Southwark and Millennium Bridges, where you can climb up on top of the flood break and sit with your legs hanging over the edge of the river. 
The water is always brown, full of plastic and dead birds, ever-changing, unstable but holding fast. I take a lot of comfort from these moments, watching history float by. A little further along from that spot, under Blackfriars Bridge, there's a pipe outlet for the old River Fleet, now buried far underground. Or at least, there used to be. It might be that, by the time you hear this, it's actually no longer there. The Fleet River runs from the Hampstead Heath Ponds down underneath North London, and the shape it carved in the landscape prior to its entombment is still visible in spots like the Hoburn Viaduct. Along the way, it picks up tons of raw sewage from old plumbing systems, which is eventually dumped into the river at Blackfriars. There's currently work underway, however, to convert this ignoble tributary into an extended bit of river embankment which will house an access point to a 25km super sewer beneath the River Thames. The old system simply dumped untreated sewage directly into the river, but by intercepting it and sending it to filtering stations outside of town, they're hoping to greatly improve the cleanliness of the river, and therefore improve the natural environment further down towards the estuary, rolling back a century of kicking the can east. It's a piece of work with a lot of heritage. The story of London's sewage is really the story of London as a whole. Once a city reaches a scale where simply throwing waste out the window no longer works, you need public infrastructure to step in and take its place. Inadequate sewerage is one of those material social conditions which makes socialist solutions inevitable in an almost Marxist sense, even if they're often limited in their implementation. Private industry simply cannot deal with the scale of public works required to excavate hundreds of miles of sewers in an already overdeveloped city. I'd be remiss at this point if I didn't bring up the story of the American group commonly known as the Sewer Socialists. Operating in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they were a socialist reform group who achieved consistent electoral success for around 30 years between 1910 and 1940. By focusing on public works and infrastructure at a time when most American cities were so wedded to the private sector that it was impossible to modernise efficiently. Sewer socialists was originally a pejorative term for them, since they spent so much time bragging about the sewer system they implemented. But they make for a fascinating case study in how simple socialist policies can be sold to the public in bite-sized doses. If everyone chips in, we no longer have to deal with human shit clogging up the streets and roadways. Of course, the downside is that it's hard to then pivot into the larger projects of worker power and solidarity from that position, but that's a conversation for a different podcast. In London, the sewer system changed the landscape in thousands of different ways. When sewers were first constructed in the 17th century, it helped to massively reduce deaths associated with exploding cesspits, a major concern due to the methane produced by them. By the 1850s, however, the concentrated dumping of human waste had led to toxic, poisonous build-ups of effluent all along the banks of the Thames at low tide. This culminated in the Great Stink of 1858, where a heatwave combined with decades of waste to create a smell so bad that parliamentary sessions were broken up, and hundreds of people were hired to spread lime on the foreshore to help break it down. Once the corridors of power started to be affected, a plan was quickly approved. The riverfront was extended outwards, and great embankments were built out of the earth excavated further downriver for docks. 
Within them were embedded sewer intercept pipes, designed to carry sewage further and further east, while the narrowing of the river caused it to run faster and wash more of the existing waste away. It was a spectacularly effective scheme, and the city's river has certainly been cleaner since. That said, it was really just another one of the many ways to push the problem further along, and not even the most visible one at that. In 1887, the still-rising population of London meant that further measures had to be taken to get sewage out of the city. That meant, in practice, moving it further east once again. To do this, a fleet of sewage boats were built, which were designed to be filled with tons of liquid waste at a time, and then sailed down river and out into the North Sea. This waste would be jettisoned over the Black Deep, an especially deep ocean trench about 15 miles out from the appropriately named Fowness Island, originally named after the fowls in the avian sense of the word, who used it as a nesting environment. These boats were formerly called sludge vessels, a nasty enough name, but they were more commonly known as bovril boats, after the noxious brown sludge that would leak out of them at dumping time. Amazingly, these continued to operate right up through until raw sewage dumping was banned by the EU in 1998. Now we've left the EU, maybe we can again return to the halcyon days of millions of tonnes of human shit being dumped within tidal reach of our beaches and natural environments. Wouldn't that be just a dream? While the Bovril boats operated further out towards the ocean, the estuary has served as the bowels of London for centuries now, and has an appropriately bleak and unlovely reputation. Everything from industrial waste to corpses has been pushed into the Thames to wash out to sea, and the estuary mud has absorbed bits of it all, the grease trap for a city of dirt and despair. Ironically, the same smells and sights which have historically kept people from thinking of the estuary as an attractive place to live have done wonders for the local wildlife. The mud of the estuary is home to dozens of species which support complex life cycles further upriver and out to sea. While the pollution and industrial waste hasn't done any favours for the area, it's still a haven for migrating birds and fish, and every time someone suggests redeveloping what is commonly seen as a bleak, barren wasteland, organisations like the RSPB have to mount another campaign reminding everyone that actually, big, open, secluded areas of mud which aren't often disturbed by humans are extremely good habitats for wildlife. The rotten egg smell that blows inland from the estuary comes from bacteria which are great food for all types of bugs and plants, which in turn sustain populations of wading birds which live there. It's really just humans who have trouble in this sort of environment, and historically, always have. The journey from central London out east is one I've made probably hundreds of times in my life. I grew up in a town on the estuary, one of the ones which wealthy journalists started visiting after the Brexit referendum, when they wanted to write pieces about disaffected Labour voters and the rightward shift of working-class politics. Of course, they never talked to the occupants of the thousands of new luxury flats who've moved there since it became a commuter dormitory. They just go to the first bald guy with the British bulldog tattoo they see and ask him what he thinks about refugees and pretty much make that the entire story. Don't misunderstand me. 
it was an intensely racist place with a lot of intensely racist people. But if you're a London journalist wanting to talk about British fascism, you'd be better off taking a critical look at your own news desks and opinion columnists instead. I find myself thinking more and more about Essex recently, trying to confront my own relationship with the place. I'm still the same anhedonic teenager in my heart of hearts, scrounging up temporary emotions online, obsessions, rabbit holes to venture down and distract from reality. There's a part of me, though, which wonders what I left behind when I moved away. I've seen the house prices out there, and they're not unreasonable. Still ridiculously inflated, sure, but I might could afford a flat if I moved out east, you know? Maybe I could log off a bit, spend less time plugged into whatever weird little arguments are devouring Twitter today. I could join a local leisure centre, go down the gym, start swimming regularly, buy a practical little hatchback on a reasonable monthly payment. I could finally get a TV licence and sit down every night to watch literally whatever's on at the time, and probably enjoy it more than I was expecting. Maybe I could even keep my job up in town, slog through the commute or, hell, drive in. Or I could get a job locally, make friends with my colleagues, go out drinking nearby, stop paying attention to journalists, join the Rotary Club, run the Cub Scouts, settle down, get opinions about traffic calming schemes, scream at cyclists for hogging the road, post weird pro-royalist rants on a Facebook group named Chapel St. Mary Neighbourhood Swap Meet, buy a nice sweater from Next, brew craft beer in the garage, find a sense of inner calm and peace at being a valued and respected member of my community, learn how to be happy, stop being so fucking sad and angry all the time. I don't know. I don't think I'm ready for it yet. Or maybe I don't think I deserve that contentedness, the stability. I still flee from being perceived. You think James Thompson is my real name? You think this is my real voice? The SS Princess Alice set off from Gravesend at about 6.30 on the 3rd of September 1878. A passenger paddle steamer operated by the London Steamboat Company, the ship was loaded with almost 800 people, mostly returning from a day excursion down at the recently opened Rocheville Pleasure Gardens. A band was playing and everyone was dressed up in their finest mid-Victorian fashions. By 1876, bustle skirts had mostly given way to slimmer princess line dresses, which were nevertheless heavily ruffled and very colourful. The ship was overloaded with passengers, but it wasn't a major problem. Tickets from the company could be used on any of the ships in their fleet, so it was normal for them to be a little overburdened at peak times. The ship was most of the way back to London when the accident happened. At around 7.30pm, within sight of the North Woolwich Pier, a series of catastrophic manoeuvring errors led to a direct collision with the coal ship Bywell Castle. There's still debate as to who exactly was at fault, although the official inquest found both parties to be somewhat responsible. Regardless, the Princess Alice was T-boned by the much larger ship and split into two pieces, with the boilers in the bowels of the ship escaping part way through and being washed away with the tide. 
It took just four minutes from the initial impact for the ship to sink entirely. Prior to the accident, the majority of the passengers were below deck or in the saloon bar. Of these many hundreds of souls, only two survived. Divers found people jammed into the doorways, crushed to death as they attempted to escape while the water crawled up on them from below. Since the boat didn't have a full passenger manifest, it's impossible to know exactly how many people were on board at the time. Many of those who managed to scramble over the side as it sank, however, suffered an even worse fate. That part of the river was, as previously mentioned, a major outlet for London's untreated sewage. Dozens who plunged into the dirty, stinking water of the Thames, drowned in a literal river of shit, unable to swim due to the fast currents and the noxious water pulling them under. Of the approximately 800 people on the boat, only 130 survived the crash, and around a dozen of those survivors later died of waterborne diseases from the stinking, fetid water. There are almost 700 bodies in the Thames, all coated in layers of filth so thick it accelerated decomposition and made identifying them nearly impossible. Over the next week, local divers were called in to recover what they could and were paid by the corpse, leading to fights between competing crews when they found one still solid enough to haul into a paddle boat and onto land without it falling apart. There's a mass grave at Woolwich Cemetery which still holds hundreds of unidentified bodies from the wreck. Folks who were never claimed or whose remains were so dissolved by the river they were unrecognisable. Still more floated downstream, with reports of them surfacing far out into the estuary. The mudflats near Tilbury, in particular, turned up dozens of stuck corpses, caught in the bend of the river, being picked over by the wading birds. These proved especially tricky to remove, though, stuck firm as they were in the estuary dirt, despite being clearly visible from the shore. The smell of rotten carcasses carried on the wind, and with it came teams heading out into the mudflats, looking to collect the reward money. By this time, desperate relatives were matching and adding to the official payment, creating what were essentially bounties. Tessa Parthenope was one of these bounty corpses. The daughter of a successful Greek shipping magnate, her presence on the Princess Alice that night was confirmed by survivors, based on the distinctive purple dress she had been seen wearing. Her father, Bronte Parthenope, made headlines by putting a £4,000 reward on the safe return of her corpse, the equivalent of almost a quarter of a million pounds in today's money. Without wishing to spread gossip and tittle-tattle, it's abundantly clear that he took full advantage of these headlines to promote the relative safety of his own vessels by comparison. Tessa was a middle child among six, and she had a reputation as a minor socialite whose antics regularly embarrassed her father's business interests. It wasn't long before Tessa's corpse was identified as one of those stuck in the mudflats, spotted through a pair of binoculars by a scrap of purple fabric fluttering in the wind, attached to what may have, at one point, been her hand. It was at the farthest point from the shore at Mucking, where the river abruptly doglegs to the right, leaving a vast stretch of mudflat exposed at low tide. 
Measuring from solid ground to solid ground, the estuary is almost two and a half kilometres wide at this point, and this is the area I was warned about most as a child. It's pure sticking mud, the type which will grab you and hold you fast till the tide comes in. It's like that even now, after all the clean-up efforts of the past 50 years. Imagine how bad it was in the late 1800s, with all the sewage and chemical waste of the Industrial Revolution running straight through it. Still, £4,000 is £4,000, and the watermen were inventive. The elder Parthenope made it clear that he wanted the entire corpse, and would not pay for anything less, perhaps hoping to weasel out of the deal, and a little campsite quickly formed near the edge of the flats, setting up in preparation for the trip out into the channel. The normal method of reaching this remote part of the river, tying wide, flat boards to your shoes, wouldn't work here, since the area was dotted with sinkholes, more water than mud, which could pull you in no matter how carefully you distributed your weight. Similarly, the spot couldn't be reached from the river itself, since it was only visible for a few hours at a time during low tide, at which point the water was too shallow for boats to safely close the distance. Various plans were made by the enterprising locals, but there was no way to walk out that far into the estuary safely, let alone return with a bloated, soaking wet corpse on your back. That didn't stop people from trying, though. As if the cost of the accident wasn't enough, the temptation of a stable life attached to the corpse in the estuary started to develop a body count of its own. The first man to die in the attempt was Gavin Smith, a 22-year-old dock worker who snuck out at low tide on the night of the 6th September. His cries were heard from the camp after he'd already sunk past his waist, and they ceased almost as abruptly as they began. He was barely 30 metres out, but he sank without trace in minutes, leaving behind a young family on the shore. William Williams was next, named for the Welsh hymnist, although he normally went by Bill, and had a reputation as a sturdy, hard-drinking sort, almost exactly 12 hours after Gavin, at the next low tide. He was working with a team, with two big planks strapped to his feet, wider than usual, and a rope around his waist. He got further than Smith had, but not by far, toppling over sideways into a sinkhole. They dragged him out and back to the shore in under two minutes, but it was too late. He couldn't swim with the planks on his feet, and his lungs had filled with the cold mud of the Thames long before they got to him. Simon Jones was next, although he was lucky. He merely slipped over a few metres in and landed hard in a pool of unidentified chemical waste, permanently scarring his face and leaving him blind in one eye. Still, he survived. Mary Parker, a skinny 15-year-old who led around a gaggle of street kids, snuck out onto the mudflat the next night, her waist tied with a rope to a little gang who stood on the shore. They figured that she'd be light enough to dance over the flats unharmed. We don't know exactly what happened to her, but the rope was found abandoned the next morning, with the kids nowhere to be found, and it took ten strong adults to yank her tiny body from the mud. By the end of the third day, eight people were dead, and a further five badly injured. And the police had to be called to break up the camp just to prevent anyone else from drowning in the mudflats. Three more people died in the next few days, 
before Bronte Parthenope called off his bounty. But even that didn't stop people from charging out into the mudflats whenever they caught a glimpse of purple fabric. And so it's continued ever since. Something about that spot calls to people, demands their undivided attention. Something that goes far beyond money. The spirit of Tessa Parthenope spoke to an unattainable stability for people building their lives in the mud of the estuary, her hand protruding from the slurry like it was beckoning to them. And so they weighed in, day after day, year after year, losing themselves in the rotten deep. Even as her name faded from headline to memory to myth, people have gone missing in the estuary, searching for Parthenope. Once, when I was young, I remember walking down along the river wall, overlooking the mudflats. I climbed up on top of it and was unhurriedly following my parents on a gentle walk on a foggy Sunday morning in autumn. Out of the corner of my eye, I remember seeing something fluttering in the wind, just past the sandbank. I turned and squinted out towards the river, scanning for it. A scrap of purple somewhere in the middle distance, flapping gently, invitingly, in the cold, misty breeze. I locked my gaze on it, and it came to me all at once. I saw my whole life laid out before me, all the places I could go, everything I could be, the people I'd love, like a clear map of the world, all flashing by in just an instant. If I could just get to it, just a short hop from the seawall, just a few dozen steps into the estuary. And then my parents grabbed my hand, and they pulled me back. for listening to season three of subterraneans i've been james thompson i'll be on hiatus for a while now but i'll let you know what's happening next when i figure it out myself i want to give a little credit on this episode to caroline crampton's book the way to the sea which inspired a whole lot of topics discussed today you can reach me at subtopod on twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app, since it really helps promote the show. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, who come calling, calling. It's driving me evil evil. Thanks for listening.